Well, join me in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And as we do enter into uh, the passage in front of us, this morning I'm reminded of uh, words from Jonathan Edwards. He's a New England guy, so he should be good. He wrote this. He said, how much better must we think the Bible is than the word of men? Better than the word of the wisest man of the world. As we come to John 14, you can join me in verses 22 through 24. We are going to see the wisdom of God, specifically the wisdom of Christ here. And it's infinite. It will boggle our minds. It should. It's a promise that is so profound from the lips of Jesus, we cannot help but remember God's ways are not our ways. His goodness is greater than anything we can fully comprehend. Verses 22 through 24, it's where we left off last time, where Jesus continues to comfort his apostles. He knows that he is about to leave them. He's preparing them for what is in store for them, what life will be like without him by their side. And as you know, as chapter 14 begins, fear has finally taken hold of the faithful 11. This is late Thursday night, early Friday morning of Jesus' Passion Week. And for three years, these men have heard Jesus predict his coming death. But early on, those predictions were cryptic. Some of them were confusing, especially since these men expected Jesus to ascend a throne, not be nailed to a cross. You can think of John chapter 2, which is very early in Jesus' ministry. And remember Jesus' prediction. He says this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's a prediction no one, not even the apostles, no one linked to Jesus' coming death at that time. That's why John adds his editorial note in verse 21. He was speaking of the temple of his body. And then verse 22, so when he was raised from the dead three years later, his disciples remembered that he said this. The apostles were expecting a kingdom, not a cross. They were expecting a throne, not an execution. As time passed with Jesus, the apostles grew also in their faith, also in understanding Jesus' mission, and Jesus' predictions of his coming death became much clearer for them. His prophecies, promises, more specific, finally culminating on this night, When Jesus celebrated a final Passover meal and he showed that every Passover celebration before this was actually a picture of what he came to accomplish in his own death. And thus, look at verse 1, trouble now fills the apostles' hearts. A spiritual depression has come over them. You could translate verse 1, In our translation, do not let your heart be troubled. You could translate it, stop being troubled. Fear has filled them. 
Set your heart at ease. Their heart is stirred. Their emotions are raw. They're anxious. They're about to lose their Lord. And in their mind, they are losing everything that mattered to them. This is the root of fear and anxiety, loss. To no longer possess what once brought us joy and security and hope and identity. The heart of fear is the fear of loss. So this is why Jesus interrupts this final meal. He will leave this upper room, but before that, look at verse 31. The chapter ends with him saying, get up, let us go from here. They're about to leave the upper room, but before that, he must give these men 12 heart-calming, fear-defeating promises to ease their troubled soul. And as we have seen, none of these promises involve the world getting any better. None of them involve their circumstances of the apostles improving. None of them. In fact, drop down to verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 19. Notice what Jesus says. He actually says, your life is going to get worse. That's what's coming. 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But you have a spiritual problem. Your mind, Jesus says. You've been rescued out of this evil world system, and thus, because you are not of the world, the world hates you. Hatred that will move into action for these men. Verse 20 If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Look at chapter 16, 16, verse 33. Here's a promise. Verse 33, in the world you have tribulation. You have struggle. Hatred from the world. The apostles' troubled future even makes it into Jesus' high priestly prayer. Look at John 17 and verse 14. Jesus tells his father, the world has hated them. And thus he asks his father, not to take them out of the world, not even to shield them from the pain of the world. No, here's his prayer. Keep them from the evil one. Sustain their faith in the world. Life is not going to get any better for these men. It's going to spiral downward fast. In three days, these men will hide in a room fearful for their life. In a little over a month, Peter and John will be imprisoned and beaten. In less than 10 years, James, John's brother, will be executed by a sword. The first apostle martyred, accused of teaching a false god. Life is not going to get any easier for these men. In fact, turn to John 21. Here's how the gospel ends. In verse 18... We have another truly, truly statement from Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, speaking to Peter, the leader, 
When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. You had freedom. You were of the world. The world loved you. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Glory in death. Glory in trouble and pain. And when Jesus had spoken this, he said to Peter, amazing words, follow me. Follow me to your death. Where's the comfort in all of this, Jesus? In light of all these predictions, how can we not let our hearts become troubled? That seems like an impossible ask. Back to chapter 14, here's Jesus' answer. 14.1, here's how you do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in me. You believe every promise I'm going to give you in these next 30 verses, you cling to my words. My words do not change. My promises do not change. You trust me. You trust that my promises to you are greater than any fear and worry and doubt, greater than any sorrow, greater than any any loss. Again, this is the wisdom of Christ. Last week, we unpacked the sixth promise from Jesus. It was this, promise number six, be satisfied because we are loved by each member of the Trinity. We are loved by each member of the Trinity. We see that in verse 23. The promise that the Father will love us. Verse 23, he who loves me, this is a description of a true believer. All true believers love Christ. Here's the promise. Every true believer, everyone who loves Christ will be loved by my Father. Repeated in verse 23, my Father will love him. To which Jesus then adds the promise of his own love for us. Verse 21, and I will love him. So here's the love of the Father, the love of the Son. This is now promised to us. This makes sure that Jesus' promise in verse 18 comes to fruition. Verse 18, I will not leave you as loveless orphans. You have my care, you have my Father's love. This all comes through the giving of the Spirit. The Spirit loves us through the Spirit's indwelling and sealing and sanctifying us. We experience the love of the Trinity. Just compare this to what Jesus will promise. Though the world will hate us, the Trinity loves us. Now, Jesus will build on this, promise number seven. Building on the Trinity's love for us because each member of the Trinity loves us. Here's the seventh heart-calming promise Jesus gives here. We'll focus here. Promise number seven, when anxious and fearful, when uncertain about what the future holds, be secure. 
Be secure. Why? Because each member of the Trinity has made his home in you. Each member of the Trinity has made his home in you. Every promise just grows in its profundity. Again, this is the infinite wisdom of Christ. This is the goodness of Christ. His goodness is greater than what we can fully comprehend. So notice how this builds, starting at the end of verse 21. He will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Here's the promise now. And I will disclose myself to him. Disclose is the key word. I will disclose myself to every believer. The word Jesus uses here is the word emphanizo. I will reveal, I will show. Jesus chooses this word on purpose. By the way, you know this word. You don't think you know it. You know this word. This is filled with grand Old Testament theology. How do we know this word? This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Moses used when he asked God, let me know, reveal yourself, show me your ways. And then this request, Moses said, I pray you what? Show me, disclose to me your glory. That's the word. Disclose to me your glory. This word here describes a theophany, a disclosing, a revealing, a showcasing of God himself. And you remember how God answered Moses' request there, show me your glory. God did show him his glory, but only after certain measures were put in place. It's Exodus 33. He, Yahweh, said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. My full disclosure brings death. You must hide your face. You must cover your body. Then Yahweh said, behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. It will come about while my glory is passing by. I'm disclosing my glory to you. That I will put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand until I have passed by. You can't have a full disclosure. Well, that's the image. That's the word that Jesus uses for himself here in John 14. He's placing himself in the position of Yahweh God, He's using that same word of showcasing glory, and he is promising amazingly, he is promising that his glory will be disclosed to every believer. That's the promise here. We should ask how. What do you mean? Well, Jesus does not explain himself. How is this divine glory going to be shown, revealed, experienced by, even by his people? Well, look at verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, probably Thaddeus of the apostles, is confused by Jesus' words, puzzled, rightfully so. What do you mean here? So Thaddeus says to him, Lord, what then has happened, what's changed here, that you are going to disclose yourself to us, a personal disclosure, and not disclose yourself to the world, a universal disclosure. 
So Judas, not Iscariot, is trying to make sense of what Jesus has just said. Again, puzzled, rightfully so. He understands what a a theophany meant in the past. The blinding light of God revealed. He understands that Jesus is the divine Messiah in the present, yet glory has been veiled. And he knows that there is a promised worldwide disclosure of divine messianic glory coming in the future. He knows all of this. He's thinking here, trying to make sense. He knows what the prophets have predicted. He knows that there's a day coming when a theophany will take place, divine glory seen, universal by the world. Thaddeus is thinking of Daniel 7. And to him, the glorious Messiah King, Jesus, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, this is universal, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's the universal disclosure of the divine Messiah. Be filled with irresistible power, final judgment, divine splendor. It will establish his kingdom. Every nation and people will serve Christ. What's happened, Jesus? That this isn't going to take place right away. That you will not disclose yourself to the world. Thaddeus is thinking of Zechariah 14. Behold, a day is coming when Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations. A day is coming when Yahweh, the Messiah, will be seen, will be revealed, disclosed, as when he fights on a day of battle. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. And that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. It's cosmic. Universal. Everyone sees this. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord. What's the result? Here it is. Yahweh will be king over all the earth. It's universal. That day Yahweh will be the only one, his name the only one. Worldwide revelation, manifestation, disclosure of messianic divine glory. Jesus even predicted this. It's earlier in the week. It's Matthew 24. The sun will be darkened, Jesus says. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will be disclosed. It will appear. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Again, worldwide disclosure of divine glory. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's how the book of Revelation opens. He's coming. He's coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. 
That's the future. That's the promise. That's what the prophets predicted. And yet Jesus says here, that's later, not now. So Thaddeus is confused. He thought the next event on God's timetable was the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. A Messiah theophany of power and judgment and rule. Again, they were expecting a throne, a kingdom. But look at verse 21 again. Jesus says, now, now, that worldwide manifestation of divine glory has been postponed. Up next, up next is not a worldwide theophany. No, up next is a personal theophany. I will disclose myself not to the world, but to him who loves me. And perhaps there's even a level of disappointment here in Thaddeus's question. Why are you uh, postponing this glorious disclosure of yourself, Jesus? Why are you delaying your worldwide kingdom rule? Why? There's perplexity, no doubt, in the question. I understand how you can reveal yourself to the world in glory. I, I get that. But how can you disclose your glory to me personally? Wasn't that the threat to Moses? You're going to die on the spot? But that's what you're promising to do with me, with every believer? Why the delay? How can this promise even take place? Well, these are questions Jesus answers in verse 23. Here's how this personal theophany disclosure will happen. Notice the middle of verse 23. It boggles the mind. We, who's the we? This is the eternal son along with his transcendent father. We will come to him, every believer, and make our abode with him. Before Christ manifests his glory to the world, he, along with his father, will manifest his glory in us. In us. connect this back to the love of the Father. This is how deep the Father's love is for us. Connect this back to the wisdom of our God. This is how deep, how great God's wisdom is. Greater than ours. And the way Jesus makes this promise, he wants to, us to compare this to the first promise he made in verses 1 through 7. There's a comparison there's parallels. Look back to verse 3. You're going to see it on a chart. Verse 3. It's a glorious promise. Jesus says, I will come, Erkamai. I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the promise of a future rapture. I will come. That's future. But now in verse 23, Jesus says, even before that future coming takes place, we will come. Same verb. We will come to you. Before I come back to get you and bring you to heaven, my Father and I will come to you now, personally, 
Before you come to heaven, heaven comes to you. And notice in verse 2 here, Jesus says, My Father's house, in my Father's house, are many what? Dwelling places. It's the word mane. That's the same word used in verse 23. We will come to him and make our abode, our dwelling place, our home with him. Before Jesus brings us to his father's dwelling place, both he and his father make their dwelling place in us. Yes, one day we will live in the presence of the Father and the Son. That is our future hope. But before that day comes, the Father and the Son now live in us. That is our present hope. And just to get an idea of how staggering this promise is, put Jesus' words here into the flow of redemptive history. The same glorious presence that dwelled among the people in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That glorious presence is the same glorious presence Jesus promises to indwell us now. And then look to the future. The same glorious presence that will one day reign upon this earth. Just read those passages in the prophets. That same glorious presence It's the same glorious presence Jesus promises to reign within us now. Jesus is taking great and glorious Old Testament promises and he is making them as personal as he can make them. Think of Ezekiel 37. My dwelling place will be with them. Jesus here says God's dwelling place is not with us, it's in us. Or Zechariah 2, sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. Why? For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. Jesus says, sing for joy and be glad and be secure. Do not let your heart be troubled. Why? Because Yahweh dwells not in your midst, but in you. In you. And notice, Jesus does not use the word lodge or inn or motel. We are not a hotel for the Father and the Son as they pass through. We are their home. We're their home. We're their residence. It indicates intimacy and love. It's where the Father and the Son make their permanent dwelling. How does this take place? How is this even possible? How does the Father and the Son dwell within us? Well, connect this back to verses 16 through 20. I will ask the Father, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit will be in you. So united are each member of the Trinity. For the Spirit to indwell us means the Father and the Son indwell us as well. That's how united they are. Again, staggering, puzzling. Look at verse 9. 
Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's how united the Son and the Father are. You see Christ, you see the Father here now. Jesus says to be indwelt by the Spirit is to be indwelt by the Father and the Son. That's how united they are. And then look at verse 10. Jesus is saying we're brought into this relational life enjoyed by Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, this is the Trinity's love for us. Look at verse 10. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, that mutual indwelling of the members of the Trinity. Again, it boggles our mind. I get this. But now that mutual indwelling of both the Father and the Son, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, that mutual indwelling now includes us. Verse 23, we, the same Father and the Son who dwell, indwell one another, now overflow that indwelling to come to us and make their home, their abode in us. And how do we make sense of this? This is an overflow of God's love, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for us. Gracious love. This is promise number seven. In the midst of a troubling world, be secure. Do not fear. Because each member of the Trinity has made his home in you. Now let's draw out four applications here. Based upon that promise, four applications. I'm going to bring you to four texts. And see that they relate back to this promise. So start in Romans 5. Romans 5, we will have that up on the screen as well. Romans 5, and here's the first application. Because the Trinity, through the Spirit, because the Trinity dwells within us, we can be sure that every trouble we face is for our good. So based upon this promise, because the Trinity dwells within us, we can be sure that every trouble we face is for our good. I take that from Romans 5 and verses 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5. And notice the because statement. Starts in verse 5. It's underlined here. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see the similarity now to John 14. This is the love the Father has for us. This is the love the Father has that moves him to give his spirit. This is a spirit who resides within us. Verse 5 here, within our hearts. Very similar language. Based upon the Trinity residing in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, here's Paul's application. Begin in verse 3. Exalt. Rejoice. Let's put it in Jesus' words. Do not let your heart be troubled. Why? It's because the Trinity has made his home within us. There's no reason to fear. Exalt in our tribulations. Rejoice. Those external pressures that weigh on us certainly includes the world's hatred of us because we're Christ. Includes that. Can expand it, though. 
Every sorrow we experience, every hurt we face, think of the disappointments that come our way. We can be hopeful in all of them. Why? Continue verse 3, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. The spirit who indwells us will preserve us. And even more, the spirit will make sure that our faith does not fail when it is tested. He will use each and every tribulation, heartache, sorrow, to fortify our perseverance, to grow our sanctification. There is no trouble too much or too strong for the spirit to not work for our good. why Paul promises that, verse 4, the Spirit empowered perseverance. That perseverance brings proven character. This refines our faith. Spirit brings a Christ-likeness we would not have without that trouble. And proven character, hope, hope. The expectation that the Lord is using each and every circumstance for our good. That's our hope. Look up to verse 2, Romans 5, 2. Paul speaks of the hope, hope in the glory of God. Because the Spirit indwells us, we can hope, we can be assured that every trouble will resound to the glory of our God through us. Continue verse 5 here. And that spirit-empowered hope does not disappoint. The world disappoints, doesn't it? Every day the world disappoints us. Believers disappoint us. That hope does not disappoint. Never will the indwelling spirit not perform his sanctifying work within us. Never will the indwelling spirit leave us in our time of need. Why? Because God's love for us will not allow that to happen. He's made his home in us in love. Finish verse five. Because the love of God has been poured out. It's perfect tense. The love of God for us is a permanent flood. A permanent flood continually overflowing within our hearts. How does that happen? It's because the Spirit indwells us. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Exalt, rejoice. It's the first application we read. We can be sure that every trouble we face is for our good, for our sanctification, for God's glory through us. The indwelling spirit guarantees that. There's a second application. Turn to Romans 8. Romans 8, starting verse 10. Application number two. If the Trinity indwells us, who can be against us? If the Trinity indwells us, who can be against us? So look at verse 10, Romans 8, 10. If Christ is in you, this is the indwelling of the Trinity, 
You're focusing on Christ through the Spirit. If Christ is in you, verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so we're now Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so everything now that follows is based upon the indwelling relationship we have with the Trinity. Here's the application. Drop down to verse 31. What then shall we say? If God, the entire Trinity, if God is for us, and so much for us that he indwells us, if that is true, finish the verse, who is against us? Who's against us? Who can thwart God's sanctifying work in us? What disappointment can frustrate God's perfect will for us? What trouble can prevent God's loving care for us? John Chrysostom wrote this, those that be against us, so far are they from thwarting us at all that even without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings. And that God's wisdom turns their plots unto our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us? Which is why Paul concludes in verse 39. For I am convinced that nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. How could anything separate us from his love? His love does not merely abide with us. His love resides in us. How can anything separate us from that? If God indwells us, who can be against us? There's a third application. Turn back to John 14. John 14, because the Trinity indwells us, he will sustain us. He will sustain our faith through every trial. He will sustain our faith through every trial. We can fight fear with faith. We can fight fear with faith. We can live in obedience to Christ as this world spirals into sin. We can guard our heart from being troubled. We can cling to Christ's heart-calming promises. All of this talk of God residing in and taking up residence within the believer, that would have caused the apostles to think of the Old Testament tabernacle, in particular, the Holy of Holies, where God himself resides, resided. No doubt in their mind, Exodus 25, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. That was fulfilled in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled, took up residence, made his home in the tabernacle. Well, here Jesus makes the application using that temple imagery. He says, we are now that temple. We are now that holy of holies where the triune God dwells and fills. 
And this is an encouragement, some motivation. It should come as no surprise that on the heels of Jesus now promising that Yahweh makes his dwelling place, his temple in us, Jesus also emphasizes a life of obedience and calls us to faith. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. Obedience is made possible here through the Trinity indwelling us. We become a new creature. We've been given a new heart. Might seem overwhelming, the troubles of this world. Motivation here is the Trinity indwelling us now secures this obedience. We can obey. Now, let me ask the question, what commands, what words is Jesus referring to here? Obey what commands? What commands? Well, it's the commands closest to this. It's the commands of verse one. The command to not let your heart be troubled. That's possible. The command to believe, choose faith in God. That's possible. To rest your fears in Christ. Cling to his heart-calming promises. Why? Because the Trinity fills us. Fight anxiety with faith. Trouble need not overcome us. We are indwelt by the triune God and greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Last application. There's many more. This is application number four. And this is just general. General. Because the Trinity indwells us, no matter the trouble, no matter the trial, the fear, the anxiety, our God will never leave us nor forsake us. Our God will never leave us nor forsake us. How much more can we cling to the comfort of Deuteronomy 31? Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble. Do not let your heart be troubled. Why? For Yahweh, your God, is the one who goes with you. But now we can add here, who is also in us. And notice, he will not fail you or forsake you. Or let's put it in the words of Jesus. I am with you how long? Always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a privilege. We're the home of the Trinity. What a promise. One commentator put it, put it this way, it is the highest and the best manifestation promised the child of God to become the dwelling place of the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. This is a promise that only the Son of God could give us in his wisdom. This is a privilege that shows the goodness and the love that our God has for us. Promise number seven, be secure because each member of the Trinity has made his home in you.
Father, we are thankful for these kinds of promises that you give. And words, we recognize words do not do this promise justice. How could they? We confess that we can only understand this in part. And yet, Lord, we can't understand the fullness of this. Allow us to find security in you. Allow us to remember that you will not forsake us in your love for us. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us, because of this, that we would indeed be bold and courageous in this world. That we guard our hearts and rest in you and hope in your glory being shown through us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.